Amen. Amen. Well, guys, grab a Bible and make your way to the book of Daniel, chapter 10. Hopefully you brought one with you and you're making your way there now. If you didn't bring one, there are Bibles around you and chairs in front of you. Page number on the screen so you can get there rapidly. If you're going to use an electronic device, that works as well. One way or the other, be in the Scriptures with us. That's the invitation here. That's the invitation for you guys who are online. That's the invitation for you guys who are in our overflow, the same. We just want to invite you to fully engage, to be present, to be in His Word, hoping that God would open it up to you this morning and that you'd be able to follow along and He would show you what He wants to say to you out of His Word this morning. That's our need, and so let's take a moment and ask Him for that. Let's ask that God would just draw us into His truth. I'm going to lead, but I hope you would pray as well. That God would open up and speak to you personally in this space and through His Word. Let's ask Him for that. God, we step into this moment, and in so doing, just acknowledge You as God. We get a chance to study Your Word together, and I thank You for it. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would do what you say you can do, what we need you to do, which is that you would open it up to us together, yes, but individually. Lord, our need this morning is to hear your voice, to know what you're telling us that we need to understand. And Lord, I'm asking that you would just enable us, that you would grant us favor and help to hear that, Lord, what you want us to understand, we will understand. God, if that happens, it's going to be you. So we ask for it right now. We ask for your help, your enabling, and your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great things can be complicated things, but those complicated things can be understood things. That's an odd way to begin, but that's exactly what we find here, that Daniel wants to tell us great things or of a great conflict, but he's going to let us know that it's a conflict that he understands and that we can understand. Why don't you notice how it begins there in verse 1? In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true. But the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Daniel tells us he understood. He had understanding of the vision, but he lets us know that it's a great thing or a great conflict. Now, I like that, but I want to just point it out to you. If you have the New King James like I do this morning, you didn't read that exact phrase in the verse. It told us there that in verse 1 that the message was true, but the appointed time was long. But if you have the New King James, you have a little footnote there, probably a little one or something there that would go down and let you know another way to translate that phrase is it's a great conflict. It's a great conflict. Now, some Bible translations, that's exactly how they do that, where if you have the ESV or the New American Standard, it would say, yeah, it's a great conflict. Now, honestly, it's because in one sense, it does accomplish all of that. The word great here is a pretty powerful word, but how to express it in English is tough. Are we talking about great as far as a great amount of time, that it's a a very long space, or are we talking about great that it's big, or are we talking about great that it's just impacting? And honestly, the answer to that is yes. It is all of that. It's a very long, very great conflict, one that's powerful, one that's, that's, that's effective, that's moving in incredible ways. It's one that we need to understand and that Daniel's going to invite us to comprehend with him. But I want to just begin by letting you know Boy, there's, there's, there's mind-stretching realities in this. It's great. It is difficult, but by God's grace, hopefully, He could meet us in a place that we would understand. Well, as we, as we move into that this morning, I want to let you know as we kind of begin to try to understand this, there are four realities, four big realities out of this chapter that I'm longing for you to kind of grab with us, four things that would help you kind of see the things that are there. And it's really going to begin with an understanding of Daniel's perseverance or understanding the place of perseverance in this chapter. Yeah, we already know when this began. It told us there in verse one, but why don't you notice it with me again? It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Pause there and think it through. 
we know when. This is the time period. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, as we do the math on that, we know what this looks like. That means for Daniel, he has been in Babylon for 73 years. He was captured as a young man, probably in his teens. That puts him at this moment around 85, maybe older in his life, kind of in this phase of life that he's stepping into this reality. In fact, it's in this reality where we have our final glimpse of this man. Yeah, this vision that Daniel talks about, it really does last all these chapters. It starts here in chapter 10, and it continues all the way to chapter 12. This is the, you know, the, the whole vision kind of moves through that whole space. We're not covering all of that this morning, but we are going to try to cover all of chapter 10. But in that, in this one vision, it's our final glimpse. It's our final glimpse of this man, of his godliness, of his impact. And so in this final kind of image that you get of Daniel, one of the things I want you to feel is his perseverance. Now, I want to approach this carefully, but I also want to approach this just honestly. Here's what I'm talking about. In one sense, this is that final stage for Daniel, and he's probably, again, 85 or older, but he's still engaging. And I want you just to own with me for a moment that that reality can become something that's not universally true, especially as people age. Now, again, I'm trying to say this really carefully, so you guys are just tracking this with me. But I want to tell you, I already feel it. I mean, some of you would say, see, I'm going to turn 54 this year, and some of you are going to that's so young. I get it, I understand, but I'm telling you, I already feel it. I already feel that there's something there that sometimes you almost begin to think, hey, that's a game for the young. You know, that, that's a, you know, you know, as age begins to pull, you begin to have this reality of almost feeling like stepping back or, or stepping onto the sidelines and, and just saying, okay, that's no longer something that I'm going to engage in. Age can do that, but it doesn't have to be just age. Sometimes it's just life. Sometimes hard spaces in life, sometimes difficult things can kind of create a reality where we have this propensity to almost tap out, almost just say, hey, you know what? I don't want to play. That, you know, that was, I used to do that. That's used to be where people were. But Daniel is, in this final just image in his life, he's still fully engaging. He's still fully engaging. And how does he do that? Well, notice a few things. As we think through what's happening in this moment, his engagement has him growing in understanding. His engage, this engaging has him comprehending deep truths and incredible truths. Again, he tells us there in verse 1. He says, the message was true, but the appointed time was long, or it's a great conflict. And he understood the message, and he had understanding of the vision. He understood the message. Daniel's engaging. He's mentally engaging in a way that he's trying to understand some really big things, and by God's grace, he's going to do that, and that's worth noting. Now, I pause and just want to say this. You know, I recognize that I am incredibly blessed. I get to pastor this church specifically, and I know it's not universally true or always true, but I'm just going to tell you, hey, I, I know that for some of you, you know, you're, you're not in that, you know, young space of life, and so definitely no kind of just, just kind of insult in that, but one of the incredible things is so many of you are still actively engaging. I mean, you're growing in his ways. You're trying to understand his truth. You're still reading. You're still thinking. You're still like, I'm not done. I mean, I want to know God more. I want to know what he's doing. I want to know what he has. And I just want to tell you, that's a powerful reality. I wish it was you know, universal reality, but it's not. But it is for Daniel. That's where he is. He's thinking. He's going to try to figure these things out. But he's not just thinking. He's engaging in a way that has him emotionally engaging so that he literally mourns what he's thinking about. Notice what it says in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, grieving, feeling the weight of things, and he's allowing it to kind of impact him in a way that draws him there. So what is he mourning about? What is it that has him at this moment kind of heartbroken? Well, let's just be clear, it doesn't clearly say what he's struggling with. But we could probably get pretty close to it because he's trying to understand. In fact, notice with me what it says in verse 12. It says, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, and humble yourself before your God. 
Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. So being spoken to, Daniel says, when he tried to, he set himself to understand. He's trying to comprehend something, and, and, and out of that, God's going to give him this incredible vision. Well, what is he probably understanding? Well, it is probably about Israel. It is probably about God's work in the world. But if we were to try to press in a little deeper, we could probably understand because of things that are happening. If you were with us in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about it. Daniel's in this incredible moment of history. Uh, that is, he was there in chapter 9, he was kind of gazing at God's promise that was going to allow the children of Israel to return. They had been in captivity for 70 years. But when the king of Persia, Cyrus, comes on the scene, he allows that to begin to move forward. In fact, in the book of Ezra, it gives it to us this way. In Ezra 1.1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he made a proclamation. So Daniel chapter 10 is year three of Cyrus. Ezra 1 is year one. So it was two years before this moment when Daniel has this vision. Cyrus makes this proclamation that says, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. It was a prophetic promise that God promised that Cyrus was going to make, and he did make. Israel's allowed to go back to the land. They're coming out of captivity. Incredible joy, but maybe a little bit disappointing. Yet Ezra lets us know that when Cyrus makes this proclamation, the Jews hear it, and almost 50,000 Jews go back to the land. Now, that's not nothing. Let's just kind of think about it. That's Roswell, right? We're just right under 50,000 people. But let's also understand it was a mere fraction of the Jews who were in captivity. Most opt not to go back. That probably was disappointing. Add to that, in the book of Ezra, we find out it doesn't immediately go well. They get back there, and it's a little bit hard, and they begin building the temple, and they're stopped. Uh, they're stopped by the, 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 the leaders there, and they stop for over a decade. I mean, they begin to try to reestablish themselves, and they give up. Maybe Daniel's hearing that. Maybe the news has just reached him of what's happening in Israel, and he's struggling. I mean, he didn't go back, and it never explains to us why. We could guess, well, you know, he's 85 plus years old. Maybe he's still kind of influential in Babylon and, and just knows that where God has for him, but it would seem to be that it, he's looking on all of that, and it grieves him. In fact, it's not just grieving him. It moves him to a place where he literally fasts over this. Verse 3, she says, I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three weeks were fulfilled. So Daniel's trying to figure this out, and so he begins a form of fasting. Now, we could actually say technically, we might not say it's fasting. I mean, some people say, well, you know, fasting is when they would say, hey, you go without food entirely. Now, the Bible encourages us, tells us there's going to be spaces that we fast in our lives, but it's interesting that it never really gives us like, hey, this is what you have to do. And there's a number of different ways, and this is one way that was done. Daniel, he doesn't stop eating entirely. Maybe, you know, physically he's not able to do that. He just stops eating anything pleasurable. He says, I didn't eat any pleasant food. I mean, no meat, no wine. He says, I, I, I kind of kind of put myself, if we might say, on a bread and water diet, you know, for this whole place. You know, I'm still eating, but I'm pulling back from that as a way of humbling myself before God, as a way of acknowledging I desperately need Him to step into this moment. And I just want you to see that's a powerful reality, but it's an engaging reality. Daniel is actively stepping into this moment. He's trying to figure it out. He's praying. He's trying to figure out what's there, and God's responding. Yet read it again in verse 12. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Hey, hear that last part, I have come because of your words. See, Daniel's persevering. He's asking, and God begins to unfold to him this vision, but he's letting us know that it's responsive, that God is responding to Daniel's prayer. 
See, if Daniel didn't persevere, that's kind of what I'm holding out to you. If Daniel didn't persevere, what if he didn't? What if, he, what, what if he had kind of tapped out? What if he'd put himself on the sidelines? It could be that maybe chapters 10, 11, and 12 never would have happened. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are God responding to him. God saying, you're asking, I'm going to show you. You've asked, and I'm going to reveal something to you. And to me, that's a powerful reality. Because if he didn't persevere, it might never have happened. Or what if he even quit in the midst of it? It's an interesting reality, but we know it takes three weeks for this answer to come. But there wasn't an understanding that Daniel knew it was going to take three weeks. One of the things we're going to learn as we read this chapter is that happens because of a whole lot of other spiritual realities. What if Daniel had given up one week in? What if he'd given up week two? Would it have ever happened? I can't fully answer that. But I'm going to tell you, I'm drawn to the reality of perseverance. There is a place that if you can see Daniel, I just want to tell you that he is still in the game, that he's still saying, God, I want to see what you're doing. I want to pray about what you're doing. I want to to be a part of what you're doing. I'm going to fast. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to seek. And that kind of perseverance is worth noting. We need it. I mean, again, it's not just true for being older. I love the way it says in Hebrews that we should run the race that's set before us with endurance, or another translation is perseverance, like, hey, stay in the game. Don't give up. Don't, don't quit is the idea. And that propensity to do that is always there. Some of you are reading with us in the book of Acts, and in Acts 20, Paul says the same thing there. Is they're trying to understand why he's doing what he's doing, and in Acts 20, he tells them, you know, but nothing else really matters to me. But I just want to finish the race that God has put before me with joy. That there's this heart, this passion that says, I don't want to miss what God wants from me. I mean, I'm I'm fully engaging. I'm fully entering into this. And there's something here that right now I want to tell you as we kind of gaze at Daniel and see this final couple chapters that really are this, that I hope you are left with an inspiration of this man who says, I want to know. I want to be a part of it. I want to see what God's doing. And Daniel perseveres. Hey, it's a good beginning. It's that which really launches it, that God's again able to tell him, I've come because you asked. I've come because of your words. So that's what what sparks it. That's what creates it. That's what brings this whole thing to pass. And so as we begin to look on it, that vision that Daniel begins to see, well, I want to tell you the key is that he begins to see Jesus. Well, that's at least what I think, but let's go into it. In verses 4 through 9, we get the vision, the beginning of the vision, and I'd like you to try to imagine it. It says in verse 4, now on the 24th day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, and I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color, the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw the great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. So the question is, as Daniel begins to see this vision, the very first things he sees is this certain man. Bible students wrestle through who this certain man is. There are several possibilities. One of them is that it's Jesus, that who Daniel sees is what we would call a theophany. That's God showing up in the Old Testament or Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Others say, no, this is probably an angel, maybe Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel's already been introduced to Daniel. He doesn't actually use that name in this chapter, but it could be. Or maybe it's just another angel. So really probably three possibilities. Either it's Jesus, it's Gabriel, or another angel. Now, Bible students are fairly evenly split. 
And there's good reason to believe any one of those. And so if you come at this differently than where I land, you're, on, you're in good space, that that's a good place to land. And there are good reasons to even think that through. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment as to why some would see some of the other ones. But I just want to just be simple and tell you, I believe it's Jesus. I believe who Daniel sees is Jesus. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But one of those reasons, one of those reasons that I solidly believe that who he sees here is Jesus is because of the similarities that are found between this and the book of Revelation. Yeah, lots of things we could talk about. We don't have time, but let me just quickly just tell you there are some amazingly just wonderful similarities between Daniel, especially this chapter of Daniel and the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written by the apostle John, in the final phase of his life, as an older man, just kind of just there in Patmos, but still engaging in the things of God, he gets this incredible view of the end times. Daniel's here as an old man beginning to see some of the same things. Both the Apostle John and Daniel are referred to as the beloved. Yet twice in this chapter, he says that you are greatly beloved. It's the same term that God would use for the Apostle John, and there's some interesting similarities. But Again, the reality is the way that it pictures out is exactly the same. So Daniel's beginning to see this vision, and the very first thing he sees is this man. When the Apostle John begins to see the, the vision of the book of Revelation, the very first thing he sees is Jesus. But the description is the same. Uh, let me put it up on the screen, just read you some of it, not all of it, but it's there in Revelation chapter 1. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And it's Jesus, no doubt, clearly referred to in the text. That he's clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band, just like Daniel sees. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass and as refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Well, yeah, if you were paying attention to what we just read in the book of Daniel, it's the same thing. They both see this man, this golden band, these eyes like flames of fire, these, these, these feet and hands of, bur of burnished bronze, and all of these descriptions are powerful realities that picture the nature of Jesus. It's not a portrait of Jesus, like this is what he always looks like, but it's God's character revealed. And there's much that is found there. There's much that we could talk about that would help us just kind of dive down, but I just want you to say, hey, in the simplicity of it, I think it's Jesus. Lots of reasons for that, both because of these two visions, but we could even say there's other similarities. Some of you might recognize, even as Daniel was going through this vision, it reminds us of others. We think about reading in the book of Acts, and for some of you who know Paul's testimony, it sounds just like this. He's like, yeah, I was there, everybody else was with me, but I was the only one that saw it. It was just for me. And, and Jesus was speaking to the apostle Paul. So lots of cool things that would draw us to just believe, and I want to tell you, I think he's seeing Jesus. I think that, that both for John and Daniel, it's there that the first thing, maybe the key, maybe the most important thing to understand is that it's him that we need to see. In fact, some of you were with us when we did the book of Revelation a few years back. We talked about it so many times because the book of Revelation begins with that phrase. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of end times. It's not a revelation of, uh, of end times events. It's all about seeing Jesus. So I want to tell you it's the same thing, that what we're seeing here in Daniel, what we're seeing in the midst of this, is that point where in the midst of understanding the great conflict, that Daniel says is the great conflict, that the key part is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Always needed, the Bible's clear, fix our eyes on Jesus, the awesome finisher of our faith, that we are to keep our focus there, always needed in every place of life, but specifically, if we're going to try to understand what the Bible calls this great conflict, then it has to begin with seeing Jesus. In fact, let me give it to you in a different way. I find myself thinking of another battle. It's the one where Israel begins to take the land in the book of, of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5, before their very first battle facing the, the city of Jericho, it says, It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. 
I mean, Joshua's there and he sees a man. Now, can I give you the quick FYI? It's Jesus. <laughs> I mean, no doubt about it. This is God. We'll see why in a few moments. But he's showing up again in another theophany that's there. Joshua sees this one, but he doesn't know it yet. And so he's asking. He just looks at this one and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? It's a great question. I mean, he just sees it. It's like, whose side are you on? Are you on our side? Are you on their side? Pretty simple question, right? A or B answer. Their side, our side. Whose side are you on? Jesus answers. He said, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It's one of my favorite answers in Scripture. I mean, just like, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? No. Like, no. Like, that's not even what I was asking. But it's like you're asking the wrong question, Joshua, because I haven't come to be on your side. I haven't come to be on their side. I'm the commander. I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, let's think that through a little bit more. This idea of the commander of the army of the Lord is a fascinating picture. It's a description that's given of Jesus that he is this, but it's also worth just quickly making sure we understand what it is. Who's the army of the Lord? Well, some translations would say the army of angels or the the army of the host of angels, and that's exactly what it's referring to. In other words, there's an army of angels that are under his command, that he's the one that's in charge of all of them. That's going to be powerful because that's where we're going. That's a little bit what's here in Daniel chapter 10. But before we even get there, again, it's this idea that we're saying, okay, you're the commander. I mean, you're the one who's in charge of this. Joshua has his focus on Jericho. He sees the earthly at this moment, and God says, it's not actually the earthly you need to see. It's not the army of Jericho, nor your army. It's what's happening in the heavenlies. And you need to understand I'm in charge. You need to see that I'm the one who's over all of that. That's profound. Well, for Joshua, he responds and he just rightly says, falls on his face in the earth and worshiped and said, what does my Lord have to say to his servant? Like, I'm here to say, you know, you're God. And he bows and worships, which again helps us understand this is Jesus. No angel would ever accept this. They don't ever. You know, we get it even in the book of Revelation. They don't. This is why we know it's Jesus, why we know it's God. And so he accepts this worship, and then Jesus just speaks to him. He says, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take the sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. He says, right now, you just need to be recognized where I am, that you're in the presence of God, and there's a sense of his holiness, of his greatness. Joshua does so. He worships. That's the reality that I think is meant to impact us right now, that if we're going to try to understand what Daniel understands, if we're going to try to even think through it, the apostle John saw, it begins with seeing Jesus, and it's not a minor part of the story. I would say it this way, if you don't see this, then you'll see nothing else, not the way you're supposed to see it. If you run fast to the other parts of it and don't begin by saying, okay, I get it, it's, it's about Jesus, Jesus is in charge, it's about him building his kingdom, it's about what he's doing in the world, he's the one in charge, he's the one that's real. I mean, that's what we're needing to see, it's Jesus, it is about Jesus. That's what Daniel sees, and it's important for you and I to see the same, to think about what we're going to try to understand is to see him. So Daniel, Daniel perseveres. He's asking. God's answering. He begins to see Jesus, and then he begins to unpack it. Now, for the rest of this chapter, there are two things I want you to see, and we're going to do something a little different. Instead of just working verse by verse, I'm going to kind of do a little leapfrogging, and we're going to cover pieces of it, and then we'll come back and cover the rest of it. We'll cover all of it, but not sequentially. If you want to go back and read it later, sequentially do that. In fact, homework, if you want to go back and read all the way from chapter 10 to chapter 12, you should do it because it's one vision. Nevertheless, there are two realities in the rest of the chapter that I think are worth your noting, and the first one is that Daniel's going to get insight into the invisible war. Yeah, an invisible war that when we think about it this way, we're talking about a spiritual war that rages between angels and demons. Clearly understand the Bible's honest about this. This is entirely real. If you're one of those people that struggle with this, I just want to tell you it's a part of it, and Daniel gets quick glimpses into it. Notice, for example, go down to verse 13. It says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. 
Yeah, he begins to talk about these princes and kings of the nation of Persia, but he's not talking about earthly kings. He's talking about demonic, those who seem to be behind the the scenes working there in the midst of Persia. On top of it, he gets a glimpse of Michael, who is an angel, an archangel. In fact, we'll see the same thing in verse 21. It says, I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. That Michael, the archangel, involved in this incredible reality is in this, but he gets a sense of it. But it's not just there in Persia, it's in the kingdom that's coming, which is the Grecian Empire. He gets that in verse 20. It says, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to the fight. I'm going back to the battle with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. There's a spiritual war taking place between these whole things. He says, I'm going to go back and fight. But he even lets us know that battles had just taken place. Go back, I'm sorry, go ahead to verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, also in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That behind this transition to power and behind everything that's happening, he says, there is this reality that's taken place. Wow. Okay. Pause with me and think this through with me just for a moment. This is amazing. This is just crazy in one sense to begin to try to understand, but it gives us a glimpse into the heavenlies, to a reality of the reality of angels and demons. And if that's not something you believe in, I'm just telling you it's true. It's actually true, and it's there whether you believe it or not. It's a part of it. But then let me also tell you something. We get this incredible glimpse. In fact, here in Daniel, we get probably one of the best glimpses behind the scenes anywhere we do in Scripture, and it's enough to know that it's real. But it leaves us asking dozens, hundreds of questions. And those questions are unanswered. I just want to tell you, I mean, if you could get it with me, like, really? So angels and demons are fighting. Like, how does that work? I mean, and and how does that whole thing play out? And hundreds of questions that are a part of it But God doesn't give us that. In many instances, we don't need to know it, but it is enough to know that it's there. That there's a sense that as we think about what's happening, there's a spiritual war. In fact, this war, it's an organized war. The demonic forces seem organized very specifically even behind nations. That it seems that they play a part in that. Now, we get that both just glimpsed here as we see that, hey, there are demons over Persia and over Greece, but we get that even in the New Testament. When Paul is talking to us about this spiritual war, he would say it this way. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, we're, we're in a battle, but these ones are actually the rulers of the darkness of this age. They're, they're moving in the midst of this. They have a place of it. And we get just some powerful realities that we understand that demonic forces have an organization to them. And even behind the affairs of men, kind of in this place where it's behind nations and, and working in those things. And it gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. Well, as we try to process that, understand this, not only are they there, not only are they organized, but what happens there affects what happens here. Yeah, these two are not separate. In fact, part of why this vision unpacks the way it does is because of what's happening in the heavenlies. Yeah, go back to it and read with me there in verse 12. It says, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come because of your words. I mean, immediately you started praying, Daniel, I came, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I'd been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Hey, the reason this answer took 21 days to get there is because there was a spiritual battle that took place over this, that this, this demonic prince of Persia seeks to stop and hinder it, and it lasts 21 days, and again, wow, I mean, there's just so much that's trying to figure out what that looks like there, but it's right there we come face to face with one of the problems that I kind of talked to you about a moment ago, but let's come back to it. Is this Jesus? Is this the one that, that Daniel said, is it Jesus that, you know, he sees this man kind of in, in this golden girdle and this eyes of flame of fire? If so, I mean, how could that happen? I mean, how could it be a part of that? This is exactly why Bible students land with this. And again, let me just help you understand. 
Some would say, um, it can't be Jesus. It can't be Jesus because Jesus and an angel, Jesus wins. I mean, it's like, you know, there's no way that, that if, if that was really Jesus that it could ever be there. And I kind of understand that. That said, others would say, well, you know, there, maybe it's because of that, it's an angel. There are a number that actually think that both an angel and Jesus is involved in this chapter. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time kind of walking you through the chapter, but it is possible. It is possible that the early vision that, Jan- that, that Daniel has there was to see Jesus, and then now it's an angel that's involved in kind of bringing the message and physically. There's a number of people like Warren Wiersbe and his commentary that go into it in great detail if you are so interested, but I just want to tell you it's possible. But I understand what they're saying. So some would say because this one was hindered for three weeks, it couldn't be Jesus. Now that's possible, but let me just kind of press a little past that. That just raises so many questions. There's so much we don't understand about spiritual warfare. I mean, like it might give us peace to think, well, yeah, Jesus couldn't be resisted for 21 days, but an angel could. I mean, could God's plan be thwarted for 21 days? Could things be so, you know, in, in that, I mean, th- that doesn't necessarily ease my conscience in the sense like, well, Jesus or an angel, I mean, could this be there? Well, let me just tell you, there's so much we don't understand about spiritual warfare. There's so much we don't understand about how it works, but this we do know, God is 100% sovereign. Please understand the entirety of Scripture holds us out to this. There's no sense that God is ever like, man, I can't believe this is happening. I was trying to do something and Satan thwarted me. You know, just like that didn't work. I mean, there's no sense that ever works. He's always working in the midst of it. And his sovereignty allows sometimes the process of events to kind of unfold the way they do. It's that way in the spiritual realm. It's also that way in the physical realm. God is sovereign. There's nothing that could hinder him. He could do whatever he wants. There's not ever a point in your life where he looks at something and thinks, well, I'd like to help you. I can't. (laughs) But sometimes he allows things to go through a process, whether it's physical healing or something. And sometimes the, the, the process itself is part of his plan, but it's never because he's weak. There's so much I could say in that. But again, let's understand something's happening here. And even though I can't answer all of the questions, and I have more questions that I could possibly unpack right now. Here's what I do understand. Something was happening in the, in the spiritual realm that was affecting just even this answer. And there's something, again, of us understanding when we're thinking through this invisible war, it does have effect on our lives. It does have effect on even things that are happening in our lives. So maybe that's part of the invitation. Maybe that's part of the point is for you and I to see it that way. For you and I to, to gaze at history and to make sure we see something bigger than sometimes others might see. See, let's go back to it there in Ephesians. Paul is telling us to us this way. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. People aren't our problem, Paul says. It's not really them. It's not really flesh and blood. It's not really them. What's really happening is the spiritual war that's behind the scenes. Now, that's important to understand. Where Daniel is, he's looking at history, and he's about to gaze down history. In chapter 11, it's going to begin to unpack for us, and it's going to give us about 200 years of Greek history. We're going to watch wars take place. We're going to watch kings of the south and kings of the north, and we're going to watch battles and things unfold. But the point of what you're seeing here is before you see that, this kind of affairs of mankind, understand there's a spiritual war. That's going to gaze us all the way into eternity future and understand again the reality of that. And so the point of it is an invitation for us to make sure we see it that way, that we're the ones that recognize it really is that way. Now, we're in different places in this this morning. I'm talking to somebody right now, you've never thought about it this way, never. And, and this is like brand new information for you. I'm going to tell you it's true. Maybe you, you, you've never been able to comprehend that the things in our world are greatly impacted spiritually, that it's not politics, it's not, it's not money, it's not, it's not nations. Behind those nations are spiritual realities. And Paul says that's the real problem. The, the rulers of this world are there, and if you need to gaze that, then, then you need to. Others, you might already be there. Like, you're fully there. Like, man, Jim, you preach it. Like, you tell them. Like, make sure people understand that it really isn't all of these things. That's good. But for many of us, we're in between. I mean, it's not that we don't believe it, we just easily forget it. So that we still find ourselves looking at the world through the lens that the world looks at the world through. And we find ourselves thinking, it's politics. 
It's Republicans and Democrats. That's what's really causing the problems. Or it's money. Or it's Russia. That's what it is. But Russia behind or, or it's North Korea. That's what the whole thing is. As if the world were being controlled by any of these factors. It's not. Hey, all of these are pawns in some ways behind it. It's, there's a spiritual war that's behind all of this, and you and I are invited to say, I don't see it the way our world sees it. I don't just see politics. I don't just see, you know, I don't just see nations. I don't just, I mean, I recognize that's a part of this, and, and they have their own responsibilities in those things. Again, that's going to unpack for us in chapter 11, but behind the scenes, <laughs> Behind the scenes, there's a spiritual war, and that's the real battle. The real battle, Paul Paul said, it's not not flesh and blood that we're wrestling against. It's not people that are our problem. It's not anybody of those people. It's it's a demonic war. And again, here's the reality is that for some of you, you know that. You know it if I asked you. If I sat you down and said, do you believe in angels and demons? Do you believe that Satan is working a world? Yes, you believe it, but you forget it. And that's the point of this conflict right now is to not forget it. So can I give you something helpful? Just a quick kind of a a helpful thing that might help somebody here this morning. That our part in praying can be one of the windows that helps us see that. Let me put it to you this way. I love the Lord's Prayer. I talk to you guys about it all the time. This morning I talked to you about the Bible reading bookmark and our announcement. On the back of our Bible reading bookmark we have the Lord's Prayer. It's an interesting thing. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he gave them this. He did it more than once. And I've told you, and I tell you now, I find this to be incredibly helpful. I pray through the Lord's Prayer every day. Not verbatim, not like just repeating the words kind of things, but I want to tell you, if you're struggling to pray, if you'll pray through the Lord's Prayer subject by subject, one of the powerful realities is you cover almost every part of the world that you need to think through. So you would take the Lord's Prayer, for example, and you'd begin with our Father in heaven. And you just stop and you just talk to him about that for a little while. Talk to him about what it is to know him as your heavenly father. Talk to him about the love that he has for you and the love that you want to have for him. Talk to him about that reality of of that relationship. And so you'd move through it just piece by piece. Now, lots of things in there, but if you'll do that, then one of the areas that you would pray through every single day is you'd come to this place where Jesus tells us, hey, deliver us from the evil one. That a part of our prayer life is to pause and say, Lord, you know what? Satan's real. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he could devour. He is active in our world. I recognize it. I recognize behind this world is a spiritual reality. And it is more powerful than maybe I I could ever imagine. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. I need need you to rescue me. There's something about this part of that that in my life, sometimes it's just, it's like, yeah, I'm right there. Like, Lord, I totally feel this. Other times I get to this place in the prayer, it's like, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about it. I mean, I've been praying for God's will, I've been praying for his provision, I've been praying for relationship, but I needed to remember again, there's a war. It's a war, and I am in that war. It's a war that's affecting my entire world, and that reality is something that we need to know because it changes things. It is more effective than anything else that's happening in our world, and though we don't fully understand it, you and I are invited to see it. Well, that's exactly what Daniel's doing. I mean, he gets this incredible glimpse of of kind of this incredible just cosmic spiritual war that's taking place behind the scenes, realities that are changing and literally affecting everything. Wow. So Daniel's seeing it. Let me just kind of pull you back and kind of catch you up where we are. So he's persevered, he's asked, he's seen Jesus, and he sees an invisible war. But there's one other thing that's given in this chapter. Um, before we get to the next chapters that begin to unpack history that we'll begin talking about next week, there's one other part of what chapter 10 is, and it's a place where God seems to be not just telling him that it's happening, but giving him what he needs. He's equipping him for the reality of the spiritual warfare, and that's what I want you to think through with me now. There are things that happen here for Daniel that are equally true and needed for us if we recognize the great conflict that we're involved in. And maybe that's the beginning part of it. It is supposed to be something we understand. Yeah, that's what Daniel told us back in verse 1 where he said, hey, this message is true. (laughs) Like, this is real. And he tells us he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. We, We get it there in verse 11 where Jesus speaking to him says, oh, Daniel, man, greatly beloved, understand the words. 
We get it again in verse 14, where he says, Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Part of what is happening this morning, and part of why we're talking about what we're talking about this morning, is we are meant to understand this. We are meant to say, okay, I get it. There's a great conflict that is affecting all of history, that's changing everything. It's, it's affecting everything. But in this great conflict, we also understand where it's going. We also understand that, that the reality of this is where it all plays out. So would you fast forward to, with me to the end of the vision? Go with me to chapter 12 for a moment, Daniel chapter 12. Again, it's in the same vision, in the whole place. But at the very end of it, it says this. Verse 10, many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Verse 13, but you, speaking to Daniel, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. So the vision ends with this place, this encouragement to Daniel that is telling him, hey, lots of things are going to happen. There's going to be wicked. There's going to be righteous. Some are going to understand. Some won't. But Daniel, you know, at the end, you're going to enter your inheritance. Putting it to you in a different way, hey, the battle is real. The outcome is certain. The battle is real today. There's a spiritual war happening in our world today. But there is no question like, okay, well, you don't know, Satan might win. I mean, it's just, I mean, he's really got a pretty good tactic moving. Not possible. Jesus wins. The, the end is certain. The outcome is, is without doubt. The end of the book of Daniel, the end of the book of Revelation gives us the same. And you and I are invited to see that, to know that, to know that he wins. But then you're also invited to be met in this moment. He, he looks at Daniel and as he's speaking this place of calling him to understand in these things, let's go back to it there in verse chapter 10 and twice he says it, but we'll just pick it up in verse 19. In fact, let me read all of verse 19 because it kind of encapsulates the things that I'm trying to say at this moment. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace to you, be strong, yes, be strong, so when he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and he said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So right here, he blesses him, and in the midst of this understanding that he's being given, he gives us this place where he says, O oh, man, greatly beloved. I just want you to just pause and think about that. It's twice he says it in this chapter where he begins by just trying to tell Daniel what he's saying and says, I just need to tell you, you are so loved. You are greatly loved beloved. Hey, that's true of Daniel. And Christian, it is true of you. I think about it. I like the way it gives it to us in the book of Ephesians where it says, he made us accepted in the beloved. Lots of powerful realities here, but the beloved is Jesus. And it says, if we're in Christ, we are accepted in that because Jesus is loved, we are loved, and the love that God has for Christ, he's now encompassed that in us. So he takes this turn of beloved or greatly beloved and says, in Christ, that's ours. 100% true. If you're a follower of Jesus, then it's equally true of you that God could look at you and say, you are greatly loved. But the thing is that many times that's what we need to understand. In fact, in Ephesians, it'll go on as, as he prays it this way in chapter 3. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Or quick pause, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus because God loved you. I mean, because God so loved the world and sent his only begotten son, you are grounded in. I mean, the very foundation, the very source of your spiritual life is because God so loved the world. You're there, but he says, but you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. He says, you're in it, you're loved, you just need to know it more. It's bigger than you've ever imagined. If you could kind of imagine it, it's height, it's depth, it's width, it's breadth, it's incomprehensible how deep, how wide, how full the love of Christ is. And what you need is to know that. You know, it's kind of a funny thing that the Christian life has so much that we grow in and we understand, but sometimes it's the most simple things that still remain the main things. Jesus loves me, this I know. That simple reality 
it's kind of interesting. Sometimes it's like, that's what I really needed. I just need to be reminded God loves me. I mean, if I'm going to see a spiritual war and I'm going to see angels and demons and I'm going to try to come, then, then one of the things that will hold me, one of the things that will hold me in the midst of this world is to know the love of Christ, to know that I'm loved. I'm telling you right now, for somebody, that's, that's what you, you need that more than anything else is if you could believe in that sense, the love that God has for you, it would just, it does incredible things. But it's not just the love of God. It's also a place where he calls us not to fear. Notice how it says it again in verse 19. It says, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace to you. That there he tells it. In fact, he did it in verse 12 as well. He says, here's what I need you to know. Don't be afraid. Don't let this move you to fear. Now, much we could say about that. We could talk about the nature of fear. We could talk about how often it is one of those things that become irrational. How often it becomes one of the places that Satan could work in in our lives. All true. But specifically here, when we begin to think through the spiritual war, the great conflict, God doesn't want you to be afraid. He's not wanting you to be terrified and, oh, you know, there's a demon behind everything and I don't even know what I'm going to do with that whole thing. That's not the right, if, if you could see it, there's a place of saying, greater is he who's within me than he who's in the world. And it's not a terrifying reality. It's not meant to be a terrifying reality. It's not meant to be something that scares me in that sense. There's peace that comes in it because I recognize what's happening, but there is a place where it draws me to my need for him. Or again, this place, what he says next, which is that we need strength. Again, verse 19, he says, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. He's inviting Daniel to strength. He's inviting Daniel into a place of strength, but it's worth noting that that strength is rolling out of a place of weakness. Yeah, we haven't read all of those verses yet, so let's go back and read them. Though we've seen a couple pictures of it already, this chapter as Daniel's experiencing this whole moment is marked by incredible feelings and realities of weakness in Daniel's life. Notice it again. Go back to that first vision when he first sees Jesus in verse 8. He says, therefore, I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty me, and I retained no strength. Yeah, he sees this whole thing, and everything empties out of him. I mean, it's like he says, I just, it's as if it just drains me of all strength. Verse 9, yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and in the palms of my hands. And he said to me, Oh, Daniel, man, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you. Stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel. From the, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come because of your words." So he's speaking into this whole reality, calling Daniel to feel this, but again, he feels weak. In fact, we pick it up again in verse 15. When he'd spoken such words to me, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one, having the likeness of the sons of men, touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I've retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is there any breath in me. Daniel's weakness is now fully known. Why is he weak? Well, we could, you know, he's 85, we could say that. We could say, well, you know, he's been fasting for three weeks. That certainly plays into it, but it's more than that. Because he said it twice. He said, it's because of the vision. I'm seeing something, and, and, and that creates in me a reality of knowing his utter weakness. He says, there's no strength in me. There's, a, there's an incredible space of weakness, and I just want you to know that reality is not an unimportant one. It's often that way when we step towards this. In fact, Paul would say the similar thing. So Paul gets a chance to go into the heavenlies, and he sees things in the heavenly realm. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians, and he says it this way. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. 
So Paul says, I'm seeing some incredible things, but something happens. He gets this thing that he calls a thorn in the flesh. But on both sides of, of verse 7, he says there, lest I be exalted, like this, to make sure that I don't get too proud or think too much of myself, he says. He looks at this thorn. He says, concerning this thing, this problem that he gets in his life, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might, might depart from me. Like, Lord, take this away. And God's answer is profound. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Wow. We could say a hundred things right here. I just want to tell you, this is one of those realities that rolls all the way through Scripture. It's an incredible truth, but sometimes a hard truth to own. God says, here's what's perfect. What would be perfect is if you're weak and I'm strong. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I believe it. I teach it. I know it. I still struggle with it. In my mind, I think it would be different. I think what would be better is if I'm strong and he's strong. I think that would be just like a double benefit. We're both strong. This is great. And God says, no, actually, it doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than you knowing you're weak and me being strong. There's never a better place than that. Then you recognize your weakness and you see me in my strength. That's That's as good as it gets. Well, Paul looks at that and he says, okay, well, then most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm going to boast in what's there so that I can have everything that he has for me in this. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. He says, I look on all these things and whatever reminds me of my weakness, sometimes it's physical, my infirmities, or it's emotional where there's reproaches. Sometimes it's you know, physical in the sense of needs, financial or something else, or persecutions or distresses, like things that just stress me out, that bring me to an end of myself. Those are good for me because it reminds me that how weak I am. And when I'm weak, that's where I'm strong. It's an incredible reality. It says, here's where my strength is found. My strength is in knowing my weakness. My strength is found when I'm weak and stepping towards God and having his strength. That's exactly what Daniel finds here, that in his weakness, God meets him and strengthens him. Notice again what he says, verse 18. says, then again, one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. I suppose I should quickly say it. Weakness all by itself doesn't do it. It's weakness that connects with God. It's weakness that allows us to say, God, I need your touch and your strength. And it's in that that we need what we get. It's to find his strength. That is always needed. It is needed right here please track with me. I mean, this is one of those realities that covers so many things and it meets us in life. But when we think of the great conflict, when we think of the great conflict, one of the things that needs to happen is to a place that brings us to our weakness and needing and depending on his strength. Would to God that it always goes this way. See, if you take out of this message something that makes you feel strong, like, man, Demons are real. I'm going to take them on. Give me a demon. Like, I'm going to take on Satan. If you come out of this thinking that somehow that's the battle you're fighting, you've missed it. We are never called to pray to angels, nor do we deal directly with demons in that sense. This is not where you and I do that. What we need is him. What we need is his strength. What, what it moves us to, if it works right into us, is we come into it and we see into this realm of, of this spiritual battle and we say, Lord, I, I got nothing. Uh, there's nothing in me. This is not a battle. I, I can't face it. I can't handle it. I can't do it. But God, I need your strength. I need your strength. And in his strength, we become strong. Paul would say it this way. So we get this incredible passage in Ephesians that's talking about all of these things. And he begins it there by saying, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Don't be strong in yourself. <laughs> Don't be strong in your might. Hey, there's strength for you in God. Be strong in Him. Be strong in the power of His might. Put on, he says, the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Like bring on into your life everything that God is giving you for strength because the reality of the devil is there, but in his strength you can stand against it. And that's where he gives us that verse that we've already quoted a couple times. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and the heavenly places. Like that's the real battle. The real battle isn't physical, it is a spiritual battle, but what you need is Christ. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand. Take up this picture, and he gives it to us in this picture of armor. We won't go through and read all of it, but all of them is the supply that's to us in Christ, in what he is to us, in his strength that would cause us to stand. Guys, that's what we need. There's a reality, if you can see everything that's here, everything that Daniel is seeing and is about to see is a place that would tell him, hey, this is who you are. Yes, understand it. Yes, open up your eyes to see the things that are there. No, God loves you. Don't be afraid. Get his strength. Get his strength. If you get what we're facing, if you could see the real battle, it's him that we need. And, and it should compel you into a place of saying, God, it's not about politics. It's not about money. It's not about nations. See, the problem is if you really believe that politics is controlling the world, then that's what you're trusting in. And that's what you're looking to. And okay, well, we just got to get this bill passed. We got to get that bill passed. Don't get me wrong. You should you know, use whatever that God would be good stewards of our time. But if that's what you think is power, then that's what you'll invest into. But if you believe, you know what? That's not really what's happening in a world. It's not really about nations. It's not really about politics. It's not really about money. There's an enemy. And what I need is the strength that only comes from him, that is power that is available in Christ to stand. And I can stand. I can be strengthened. And that, my friends, is what you and I need. So that's the beginning of the vision. That's the beginning of the things that Daniel begins to see. The next chapter will begin to kind of understand the reality that looks down through history. But here this morning, I'm telling you, hey, these four things that God is calling us to persevere, to stay in the, in the fight. Don't quit. Don't give up. See Jesus. Know there's a real battle, but boy, be equipped for that in Christ. One last thing, and we'll close here. So this is true. This is all true, and it's affecting every one of us right now. And if you know Jesus, hey, these things are a part of you. But if you don't know Jesus, it affects you more than you might actually realize. Paul says it to us this way. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, like if you don't understand the gospel and you don't believe in Jesus, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age is blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you might actually think it's all about you. Like, I just don't get it yet. I don't really understand it. There's a spiritual battle raging for your soul. And Satan has blinded you. He has blinded you so you don't see the glory of the gospel of Christ. And I'm just inviting you today to see that and recognize how desperately you need to have your eyes open to see the glory of the gospel of Christ, that he is the answer because this is the real battle. This is the real war, and your soul hangs in the balance. And if you're outside of that today, we invite you to Jesus. Well, with that invitation, you can close your Bibles, your notebooks, and we want to take just a moment and pray. We think about everything that we talked about this morning. I don't know where it's met you, but we're going to give you a quick moment. Maybe it's your moment to surrender to Jesus. Maybe it's your moment to ask God to open up your eyes to Him do that. Or maybe you're here and you're His, and I don't know where this specifically landed. We've talked about a bunch of things about this spiritual battle, this great conflict, but maybe one of them is yours. Would you quietly take a moment, talk to God about what he's talked to you about? I'll do the same, and we'll close in worship in just a moment.
Jesus, we think through the realities that this really is about you. You are the commander of the armies of the, of the host. It is all centered in knowing you. It's your kingdom that's being established. It's your work that's being done. And you indeed are the Lord. God, I pray that we would know that. God, I pray for any that don't know you this morning, that they would be drawn to that, that they desperately need you. I pray for that rescue. But then I pray for those of us who do know you. As you open up our minds to this understanding of the spiritual warfare, would you cause us to know that we are loved by you? That this reality doesn't need to scare us. We don't need to be afraid. But we do need your strength. We do need you to strengthen us. We do need to be just equipped by you to be strong in you. God, may we believe that. May that not only be what we understand, but may it work into us effectively. Or to pray it, Jesus, as you taught us to pray it. Would you deliver us? Would you deliver us from the evil one? Would you be the one that would be our strength, our protection, our hope today? We ask for it right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.